Hey there, and thank you for scrolling through your device to this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. I had the pleasure of speaking with a great writer, environmental steward, and an important voice in the moment we're all living through. For many of us, 2020 has marked a year where the zeitgeist of climate change drastically shifted from warnings of gloom to seeing stark examples of its effects. It may be hard to spot immediately in our lives, but between more than 26 hurricanes appearing in a season, requiring the names to start using the Greek alphabet, not to mention fires in Australia, then California, the climate has been a major character of 2020, the epic tragedy. I became aware of my guest from of all places, but fitting for the time, on a Twitter thread where he explained how improper management in California forests, not just climate change, is increasing the likelihood of fires and their magnitude. In a time where singular reasoning prevails, Nathaniel Johnson, a senior writer for Grist.org, jumped into the Thunderdome and offered insight. He explained how the increased threat from climate change is highlighting the drastic need for better management of forests. It's a bold thing to step right into the debate with a perspective that explains that the two opposing narratives aren't opposing, but both true. I read some of Nathaniel's work on Grist, checked into his books, and before I knew it, we had a time scheduled to talk. A native Californian with an incredible tie to the land himself, Nathaniel shares where his love of nature comes from, how he got active in environmental causes, and along the way gave me an incredible amount of faith in being able to shift course for the future. At the end of our conversation, I mentioned a book by author J.M. Cotes, Waiting on the Barbarians. In the book, other than being a captivating, thought-provoking read, it centers around the ways in which politics can distort and create a quote-unquote enemy. In the case of the book, the threat isn't all that it seems, but the framework from which it works serves as a lesson in all matter of things. For the purposes of listening to the next 60 minutes of audio, I wish to posit this thought to you. Decades have passed, with warnings about the catastrophes awaiting us if we continue to march on, affecting our atmosphere, landscape, and oceans the way we are. Each spiral around the sun has only sped up the pace, though. When an invisible enemy that involves every part of everything around you and is in turn affecting an invisible set of systems that we really don't have a tangible understanding of how they interact or work with each other, which is then killing off whole lines of evolution and causing a hurricane to hit Des Moines, Iowa, what is there to do but wait? How can we turn that whole convoluted sentence of wrapping up everything into some form of action? Well, there's no more waiting on invisible barbarians to come marching over a hill. They're at the gates, and we're not ready. In fact, we've been sleeping on watch. But we can plan and jump into the ring. In episode 4, we heard from Ron Good, and in that conversation, he mentions how California forest canopy exploded since 1840. In this episode, Nathaniel makes the past 30 years of forest management come into full color. Nathaniel goes into the current state of forest management in California, how it got to be this way, and what is being done to improve it. If you're looking to understand options so that an orange sky in San Francisco doesn't become a regular occurrence, there's not much better of a place to start with than Nathaniel Johnson. Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to find us on your social media platform of choice, Sign up for a mailing list to be the first to know about episode drops, know about upcoming guests or opportunities to ask questions and provide suggestions. Please visit us at 
bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, please follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod, however it is that this is getting to your ears. Thank you for listening. Hit the drums. All right. So um, just so we have it before I forget, would you just introduce yourself, however you would like to, like who you are and... Yeah, my name is Nathaniel Johnson. I am a senior writer for Grist, which is an environmental news magazine online, grist.org. And I've written a couple of books and been interested in and writing about the environment since 2001. Yeah. What what got you into environment kind of macroly? I know that we were kind of going back and forth that you were always kind of, you were raised in a very environmental active kind of family. Right. Yeah, really from from day one. I mean, I think the thing that triggered it for me was just spending time in beautiful places. My family would go to Yosemite. We would go on backpacking trips for 10 days or a week every year from the time I was uh, a tiny baby. You know, they'd just stick me up on the top of the backpack and let me go play in freezing creeks until I turned blue. And, um, yeah. And I just, you know, I, I, so I would be in these beautiful places and I, you know, when you're a kid, you have that sense of tradition every year, it becomes this, this sort of magical thing. And then we'd be coming down from the, the high mountains and it would just get less and less beautiful. You know, you, you get back into civilization, there's more people, there's more horse poop, and then you get to the parking lot, and that's kind of grody, and there's RVs, and then you descend down, and you start to get into seeing gas stations, and then the sprawl in the Central Valley, and the, and then you're back into strip mall land. And I was just like, why can't everything be like um, it is up in the backcountry? And so that's, I think that really sparked this this uh, exploration is just the aesthetics you know so i live in california now and uh i'm from the midwest and i've lived a bunch of places but i'm, I'm from the midwest and i've spent a lot of time like in minnesota wisconsin uh, sometime in michigan illinois and i've hiked all over there and what i've come to appreciate about california and the west more macroly um, especially some of the time i spent in oregon hiking is just how different you have to treat the wild right? Because it's, this is real wild, right? Like, you know, like maybe, you know, in Southern Illinois, I heard there was a cougar on the loose that they were worried about, but I'm pretty sure they took care of that as in like, Mm. you know, culled that cougar pretty quickly. Right. Um, Where like Yosemite. So like a lot of people that I've kind of connected with here in Southern California, they all have, not all, but a lot of them have these Yosemite family trips growing up. And like what I know about like the last 30 years of you know, the kind of the, the work there that's being done and kind of bring back the wildlife is how special of a place that Yosemite Valley is as a being like so close with nature and it's, you know, or the wild, you know, and it's in a pretty untouched way, but you can still experience and see, you know, fairly up close. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, it's, I think, I think there's a different level of the, the leave no trace ethic. And there's also a different level of, um, of caution 
that you have to bring to things as you get farther and farther out uh, away from, you know, we're sort of used to people being able to come and rescue you if you, you get into trouble. Right. And, right. Uh, it's kind of amazing. I haven't, I haven't done this with my kids. And when I think about it now as a parent, the, the amount of preparation work and then just also uh, comfort with the risk that it took my parents to be, you know, back then they were, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have GPS, anything to, you take, you take a, a four-year-old and a two-year-old three days out from the trailhead. And, uh, and if something goes wrong, you have to get back pretty quickly. Right. Um, right. But it's, I mean, it's, it's all it's all part of the adventure you know it, it it made it that much more exciting and you know it, it snowed on us one time and i like i got a fever and they hiked out in the snow and and everything was fine but it was like you know for me they were probably terrified but for me it was just this like ah oh, this is amazing right right i could imagine that imprinting quite a a strong memory right like that that's, that sounds awesome like like for me like thinking about I don't have kids but thinking about having kids and being in that situation that'd be nerve-wracking but uh and I don't even I don't know how I'd be able to like come down from that adrenaline rush but uh as a kid like thinking about me as a kid going in through that 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 would just be so awe-inspiring exactly yeah and just and the kind of I think the other thing is just it has less to do with um California or the the wild but just you you go out in a place where there aren't any other people and you get the undivided attention of your parents, you know? So right. those experiences of watching, watching the sunset from, uh, you know, the high granite in Yosemite and being able to see out over the, the mountains, all of that is, is really special. But the thing that really, I think made it magical to me was having my, my dad's arm around my shoulders right. you know, as we were, we were looking out yeah yeah that's a that's great memories to have yeah I, I i when i have kids i'm gonna very much look forward to doing a lot of things like that but you know the the one thing i wanted to go back to of kind of like leaving the the high mountains and going down into the central valley and kind of the uh uh color change kind of from you know green to concrete and one of the things i wanted to just touch upon is when you are in those more uh ecologically diverse or you know more natural environments of like the abundance of them right and that is one of the things that i think that without truly experiencing or going to those places you don't realize like how much there is wildlife that that potentiality everywhere right um and yosemite i think is the most interesting to one of the most more interesting places to me because like i said how you know versus like you know glacier you know glacier national park in montana you can definitely see some really cool stuff there but that's a hike to get to that you're probably going to really hike to get in there where Yosemite is, is far more accessible. Um, and I, I was, just, I was just wondering like what you've seen over the course of going there in Yosemite, like how have you seen that kind of nature grow and you know, how does that differ from other parks that you've been to or other experiences, especially like the work that you're doing? Um, I'm imagine it touches upon a lot of like the like Yosemite I see as a case study in a lot of places of just saying like, look, like we could really, you know, we can bring back predators, for example, I know is one of them, or, you know, there's other things we can do to, uh, to kind of, we don't, we shouldn't always be hands off. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting, uh, work that's been done in Yosemite in particular. And, um, they, 
they brought back fire there uh, earlier on than many other places. Um, both in I, didn't, terms of, I didn't exactly remember that. That's interesting. Yeah, both in terms of introducing prescribed burns and allowing wildfires to burn. Um, and so Yosemite itself is in much better shape in terms of uh, the forest health. Um, but, you know, in terms of in terms of the different experiences of nature that I've had in the different places I've visited, um, I think, you know, my journey as an environmentalist went from, from really being focused on, on the aesthetics on, you know, this, this place in that's the high mountains that's so beautiful um, and getting to see, like you say, all these, all these charismatic megafauna, you know, we, back, back when I was a kid, they really didn't have a good system for backpackers to deal with uh, bears. Now they require everybody to bring these bear canisters and this, the technology right, just funny. hadn't been in, invented. The canisters for, um, they're like, um, plastic canisters that bears can't break into. Oh, you, you mean like to hide, put your food in? I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, but before it was just you'd hang, you'd counterbalance two bags in a tree, and um, and the bears were really good at getting those, and uh, and so there's all this, um, you know, waking up in the middle of the night to to bang pots and pans and throw rocks at the bear, and um, and so you know there's there's all of this flora and fauna that's just so beautiful that you can't help but notice it, um, but the 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 kind of journey that I went on as an environmentalist was was realizing how much awesome stuff there was you know in our own backyards in in the parking lots of those strip malls the the crappy little weeds that are growing up between the cracks of the sidewalk um, and coming to really appreciate and and find wonder in those things as well um, and so. So I've become less oriented around around aesthetics and more interested in trying to figure out how do we, you know, how do we how do we keep those really special places? Um, And like like Yosemite, like Glacier National Park, um, how do we honor the places where we are and and start to notice those and, and be able to live with nature in our daily lives? And then how do we make the whole thing? work you know how do we get to sustainability so that um we're not just constantly expanding more and more into the into those last refuges and um and allowing for some some harmony in the places where we are living so that's and my work now is really around that like what the heck what the heck do we do to bring ourselves back into balance um and you know make room for probably two or three billion more people before we top out um, and then give give our great-grandchildren a really good chance at having uh, an awesome future. That's great. Yeah. The, now that we're in the Anthropocene, how can we actually have it be thriving, right? Yeah. Um, that's great. It, it's, 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 it's interesting. Your, your journey in uh, environmentalism is very similar to kind of uh, – you know, the uh, relationship with nature the U.S. government's had kind of developed. They were at first really only into those national parks that were really big in grandeur and, 
you know, like, I mean, for example, like coming from the Midwest, one of the things that honestly breaks my heart once, once I kind of woke up to the fact that monoculture and having whole states uh, worth of land dedicated to that is really terrible. Uh, like, you know, that there is no giant national park for prairie, prairie land, right? right. Like you, like you, I read these first accounts of settlers and they're, you know, and explorers and they're talking about how it, it looked like an ocean and felt like an ocean. You know what I mean? And some of that charismatic megafauna, which is a great word, uh, like the elks and all of that were actually from the prairies and fled into the mountains, um, which I think is interesting. Also, what you were saying of kind of instead of just constantly infringing more and more and more on these special places. I mean, for example, I mean, the whole National Park Service was largely stirred from Teddy Roosevelt not wanting to have advertisement in the Grand Canyon. You know what I mean? So it's not like there hasn't always been a perennial want to capitalize on that. I mean, it's, it's exactly. obviously, it's all too easy to capitalize on spectacles like that, right? Like I would yeah. imagine a, a, a big bed of breakfast in the middle of the Yosemite Valley would be catch quite a good fitting. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, and then ultimately leading into kind of how do we all live within a garden in kind of some kind of ma manner or ways. I think that's really great. Yeah. Have, have you seen anything, I guess, kind of what would, What's some of the ways that, like the novel ways that you've really seen a lot of hope or a lot of faith in that kind of application? The application being, uh, I guess, framework living... of like how do we live more in like these concrete strip malls? Uh, right. And and I'm assuming take more advantage of what was indigenous or native to that area, right? Some it's some of that. It's also celebrating uh, the the mixing and the, the immigration of different huh. species. I mean, one thing that's, so my second book is about urban wildlife and, um, and one of the things I found as I was writing that is that there was much greater diversity of wildlife in the cities than, um, than where I grew up in, in the foothills of the Sierra. Um, so, when I was um, when I was a boy in Nevada City, California, there were four or five main trees. You know, ponderosa pine, black oak, uh, live oak, some incense cedar and madrones. But you know, that's that's you you got those, and you're you're pretty well set. You know, you know your trees, and uh, there's a couple others, but but those are the main ones, and. Um, in San Francisco, when I started paying attention, I was, I was kind of bowled over by the number of trees because there's, you realize you're here, you're in this Mediterranean climate, you've got the native trees, but you also have the trees from the same climate in Tasmania and Australia that people have brought in. Right. You have the same trees from the Mediterranean. Uh, so, so there's this, this mixture of the entire world coming together, like just like the immigrants who, who came to San Francisco and brought these trees. And then you have all these, you know, the parasites of those things and you have. So, yeah, so you were saying like, uh, so it's not just, um, it's not just uh, promoting the, the indigenous species, but also kind of accepting um I mean, accepting what, what's been happening and kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to say it again, like the Anthropocene, right? Like that we're in this new age of scientific uh, epoch and that epoch is one that is defined by Homo sapiens running and controlling pretty much every major 
parcel of land or at least influencing it, uh, land or ocean, to be honest, uh, of, of the entire marble that we're on, right? Um, and what you're saying is kind of an acceptance of that. And what I would also toss in there as a, a, a question is, is part of your your kind of framework of saying like, well, let's accept the fact that there are, you know, um, plants that are brought over here that are species or what have you that are actually thriving within the ecosystem. Um, is that is part of that also kind of an inevitability or, or at least, I'm not going to put this... Uh, what are your thoughts on that kind of being almost a requirement be- due to the fact of how much the ecological collapse is accelerating and kind of the reshaping of the hemispheric zones and ecological zones therein, right? I mean, like yep. species that used to survive at 7,000 al- 7, feet at altitude are now needing 9,000 know, 9, and drought conditions and, and go on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I think I think we are going to... It's, it's not so much a question of are we going to need to, um, I mean, I, I just, I, I've gotten more and more deeply pragmatic uh, as I've, I've watched this crisis unfold. Um, and uh, it's, it's just hard, it's hard to be an idealist and be an environmentalist and just because the, the things that you have ideals for just are constantly under attack and, and, and the, the ideals, you know, the sort of very romantic and aesthetic ideals that I had as a kid, um, just prove over and over again to be, um, like, like twigs Mm -hmm. before the flood of, of humanity and, and commerce, just, you know, coming through and changing everything. And, um, and so my, it's it's less to do with, you know, we should accept uh, non-native species and and celebrate them, and more to do with like, let's just let's just figure out what what works. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some things we definitely will decide. You know, we don't we don't want to have this species over here. This is this is really causing trouble, um, and other things um, are going to work. And so for me, it's less about like, let's. I, I care less if a species is native or not. I care more about how it can benefit uh, us. You know, is it, can, can we um, take some measure of, can we, can we use it for fuel or fiber or food? Can we create interesting habitat with it? Is it beautiful? Um, how is it going to affect the rest of the ecosystem? Those are the types of things that, that I care about more mm-hmm. than the, the native or, or non-native, um, parts of it. And it's just like, you know, we're in such trouble. I feel like everything else sort of has to go out the window in order to, um, just take care of fixing the, those things that, that we can need to fix. Yeah. I, I, I liked what you said there. Um, kind of where does this species, you know, uh, flora or fauna fit into the continuum of the ecosystem? Does it fit well? And is it, is it of service in some way? Um, to the yeah. ecosystem, and, and and I say ecosystem because I'm including Homo sapiens in there. Um, nice. I, I, yeah. I know we talked about like that. market marketplace earlier and, and uh, before, but I one of the ones things that I like a lot in their framing of climate change is their ongoing series of it. They don't call it climate change; they call it how do we survive or how will we survive, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's that's interesting because I mean, you know, something I I do think about a lot about is mass migrations, right? 
like mass migrations of homo sapiens is something that has been a characteristic of pretty much every single major historical shift ever and we have well we're starting to see it now <laughs> and kind of that's what you're saying is how how can we kind of live within everything to thrive right exactly that's it so what's some of the um well i mean okay so we i first got kind of tipped off to you from a twitter thread actually where you were talking about some of the wildfires out here and um i i had spoken with uh ron good he's the a tribal leader of the north fork uh mono tribe um, about uh, just mostly just about their his culture in general um but one of the things that i uh, i think is so diluted nowadays uh is any sense of pragmatism which is interesting um it's interesting to hear that uh I mean, I would say it's a safe assumption that most people think that environmentalists are idealists. But to hear you say, start off with being a pragmatist, I think is also something that is uh, uh, funny, given our time and nuance, loss and uh, pragmatism out the door. Um, But in which the Twitter thread that you were kind of mentioned in was saying how some of the fires, and I, I won't even just say specify this year, I would even say, like, you can talk about paradise. Paradise was definitely a result of the uh, the campfire, definitely a result of forest management issues as well as power line management issues. I, I, was, I recently right. went on to another uh, investigative thread about how that was started um, from a 90-plus-year-old bolt that failed. Um, the reason they, right. they the plus is in front of 90 is because P, uh, PG&E doesn't keep, keep uh, any records of anything. So that's, that's great. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> And what I was talking about with Ron as well was it generally how, you know, and this, I find this per, per personally pretty funny because I have this philosophy that the truth only exists in uh, parallel, right? It's never one thing. It's always multiple things at once. Mm. And if you ever try to lay it out, and it's not, you can't tangible, you can't grab it. It's got to be multiple things. And most like most of the time they exist in conflict with each other, which is perplexing. Um, but you know that you have the, the response on one side, I don't even call a name to it saying uh, this is climate change and that response on the other side is saying that this is forest mismanagement um, and i think that the truth is is that it's both of those things and more right? right um and i was just wondering what your thoughts were on that like how much of this is result of the anthropocene and just humans taking over everything how much is the result of you know the effects of greenhouse gases and the complete shifting of weather patterns um and then also just management yeah. of the land yeah, I mean, I think I think it's there's tons of different things that you can uh, you can pin as the culprits uh, for these major fires. Um, but if you want to kind of generalize, the two the two prime movers are those things that you just said that we've we're heating up the earth, and that's making um, the weather in California, certainly hotter, um, uh, and heat dries things out. So right. you have, uh, you, you don't have as much snowpack filtering down, um, in throughout the summer and, and feeding those tree roots and keeping those streams alive. Um, and that means that you, have more trees dying when there's droughts and or trees that are just under stress and when trees are under stress they become vulnerable to infestation and there's all these beetles that have come and just girdled 
all, you know, in some places, 90% of the, the pines. Um, and so these forests turn from green to red and then eventually to gray uh, if, if they have enough time. But often, as we're seeing this year, those, those dry red trees uh, just turn into tinder for the fires. So there's, there's definitely an element of climate change here. Now, at the same time, we've been, we've been radically changing the way that this ecosystem works by um, suppressing fires and from getting away from the, the native landscape management of actually setting fires. Um, there's there, the uh, Karuk in Northern California up around the Klamath uh, talk about how the salmon need enough smoke in the air so that it cools, keeps the, keeps the sun from heating up the water too much. And the, it's true that the water needs to be cool enough or else the fish die. Um, but it also is true that um, with, with enough fires, then that, that means there's, there's fewer, more widely spaced trees that in each one of those street trees is a straw in the ground that's sucking water out of it. Um, so fewer, more widely spaced trees means more moisture to go around. It means healthier forests. It means more water in the rivers. Um, it also means that the bark beetles have a harder time getting from tree to tree. There's some that, that don't move very well. You know, if you have trees more widely spaced than just every couple of feet, um, some of these beetles spread much, much more slowly. It really makes a difference. So, um, so, you know, if we hadn't had climate change at all, we would have, yes, we would have sort of stumbled through longer. There would have been, a, we'd be able to push off the tipping point, um, for maybe decades. Um, but we, you could also turn it around the other way and say, well, if we still had climate change, but we'd manage the forest really well, um, there just wouldn't be the fuels there. We wouldn't have the the density of trees. We wouldn't have this huge number of dead trees. We wouldn't have, you know, in some places, it's not so much the trees, it's it's a real density of brush. You mm -hmm. know, in, in Nevada City, where I live, and the same is true around Paradise, there's places um, where... It's more of this mixed chaparral forest where you have just these intense manzanita groves. Mm -hmm. Manzanita are beautiful plants, um, but when they grow for 40 years or something, they turn really big and they can just explode. They have all this, these uh, uh, oils in them and they just explode when the, the fires hit wow. and they, they drop these, you know, they're little round leaves that don't decompose very well. And it just becomes this pile of duff like this, that is great for starting fires. Um, so that was a big issue around, um, around paradise. And so, you know, certainly it's, it's, it's impossible to disentangle. And, and I think you see people on both sides really trying to make hay over, like, I can frame this as, you know, look, there's no climate change here, you know, or I can frame this as, uh, um, look, uh, the entire, 
the well, let's see. What, I have it backwards now. Look, there's no climate change here. Or, or look, you know, it's all climate change. Uh, we don't need to touch our forests. They're natural right. and beautiful. And, you know, um, so, you know, the, the, the pragmatist, the solution is, gosh, we, we got to do it all. Right. We got to, <laughs> we got to use these forests. Um, we've got to realize that um, there's, you know, there's a trade-off between the aesthetics of having, having these things just be beautiful. Um, and also understanding that, uh, it, the foothills and Sierras of California are, are one of the best places in the world to grow timber really quickly. And, uh, if you want, if you like wood things, you right. know, like many of, many of my, uh, you know, my, my wife teases me because whenever we're making design decisions, I just, I always want like unfinished wood. You know, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's so beautiful. And it, that really comes from my sort of hippie, all natural upbringing, I think. Um, and yet we were the ones that were out there trying to stop people from ever cutting down the trees to, to create that wood. So, so there's a, you know, we, we have the chance to utilize this, this really productive area to, to have some timber and have it be, instead of just being, um, purely motivated by profit, motivated by, motivated by sustainability so that, you know, a little bit is taken off at a time so that the, the streams down stream are kept healthy. Um, but it relieves pressure on the less law abiding places in the world where most of our timber comes from now from, from Russia and, and Southeast Asia that are just, you know, people are just coming in and being purely motivated by profit. Um, I didn't know that. So, so most of our timber and, and when it comes to like, I'm imagining like small goods making is from, from, uh, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I should say most. It's uh, I. It's been a while since I've looked at the figures. I think in in California we get a lot of our softwoods from Canada, which is which does a good job. Um, and in this, and then there's like the big timber plantations in the southeastern U.S. Um, but uh, there's a ton of pulp and paper and um, and some timber softwood timber production that uh that comes from russia mm. where it's just sort of robber barons right. you know the oligarchs just sort of logging like crazy um and and there's you know same thing in in southeast asia there's like you know the indonesian cronies of of the government who get handed a concession and just turn it into um paper or turn it into, uh, you know, they log it off and then turn it into palm oil plantations. Um, there's a lot of really beautiful, uh, tropical hardwoods that come out of the, the rainforest in Southeast Asia. Um, so, you know, by having, by having some, we're in a position to, to really do it well here. And if we can, if we can produce, um, some timber here while also uh, having the side benefit of managing our, our fire risk, um, and do it well and be sustainable. Um, that really does take pressure off of the world market. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, every, not only from like the local and kind of more macro carbon sinks of ripping out a whole forest or valley or section of, 
of land uh, shipping it and processing it and all of that uh, is probably going to be done with less regulation than it would be done here in the States. And it, even just shipping it alone is, is quite uh, stark as far as like the carbon cost and, and kind of just greater insustainability of it. Um, you know, one of the things that Ron mentioned to me when I was talking with him was pre-1815 how most of uh, the forests in California had about 40% were canopy. And now it's like 80 to 90%. So that just kind of gives perspective to how yeah. much the overgrowth really is. Um, so I I, I, I want to be conscious of time, but could you go a little bit into kind of like uh, the history of logging and kind of what you were mentioning, mentioning there and what happened to that uh, kind of get us to the point now and kind of where you, you were kind of hinting at it along the edges there of, of, of potentially going back to logging in some capacity, but kind of uh yeah run through that a little bit yeah um let me i'll I'll try and just give you like the the super cliff notes version and my knowledge is really fairly limited to california because that's that's what i'm most interested in um but this comes from growing up in in a town that really was an extractive industries town Nevada City, California, was founded during the gold rush. It, it's, it was one of the boom towns uh, built on gold. And then when the gold ran out, people it kind of crashed, and people looked around and, uh, and saw timber, and that was kind of the next thing. Um, during the gold rush, they, they basically cut down all of the trees for beams to support the mines, for... Um, they built these amazing flumes to, to take water from high up on a river and then move it down. Um, and so you have this pressure to, um, to create a giant stream of water to blast away the hillside right. and um, filter out the gold. And those just went for miles and miles and miles and, um, and took a lot of timber. Um, so if you look at the pictures of... Um, of Nevada City post gold rush and it's just desolate there's there's no <laughs> there's there's no trees you know and, and everything in town was was a muddy mess um, and so so then in California the kind of all of the trees grew back at the same time you know they so you had this everything instead of being a staggered forest of different ages and heights you had everything growing back at once um, and then being clear cut as soon as, uh, as soon as it was ready. Um, and that kind of continued more or less. You, you see these, um, it, it depended on the, the price of timber and there were some, some years where there wasn't as much logging, some years where it was more, but there's graphs of timber production from forest service land and it kind of just, it, you know, kept creeping up as they learned more ways of extracting more timber and, and growing trees quickly. And um, but the general idea was, you know, this is this is the one purpose. We're going to just get as much wood from this land as possible, and we're really not going to worry about what happens downstream or to uh, other species that depend on the forest or or really recreation at all, or people that, that want a, a beautiful place to be. Um, 
And then in the, um, when I come into the scene, you know, I was born in 1978. And so that's sort of well into the environmental movement. And so my parents were these Berkeley hippies who moved up to this little town to get back to the land and shelter their, their child from the evils of modern technology. I was, I was learning to walk and I was falling on the concrete sidewalk and skinning my knees. And my dad was like, this is, this is, this is not acceptable. We need to go somewhere softer. We need to get back to the garden. That's great. Um, so, um, so we move up to this town that's sort of one of the last remaining, um, industries there is, is timber and, uh, try and stop it. You know, we, I, I was, me and my mom went and, uh, tagged trees, you know, put signs around trees that were certain diameter, um, in a proposed, um, shopping center to see if we could stop that from being cut down. Um, and we failed. It became, you know, it became a shopping center. Um, and, but the work was really being done by the spotted owl and the, the court cases. Um, so this was really this test case for, for the Endangered Species Act. Um, and it, it found that really you could, you could just say, stop, we're going to, this entire industry needs to stop in order to protect this, this one animal. Um, and in California, really, you know, at least on, on public land, it stopped um, logging completely. And there's, there's still some big private um, timber production, um, but they, they have to be a lot more careful about how they do things. And so, so, you know, that was, that was end of the seventies into the, the late eighties. Um, and then for the next 30 years, really, you know, we, the environmentalists, we, we had won this fight and we really had a chance to, to own the problems that they came with it. Like we couldn't blame everything anymore on the, the clear cutters and the timber companies. And we started to see that things were, um, that it was a heck of a lot of work to, uh, maintain defensible space around our houses every year. And, um, and that even if we did our best, um, we were fighting this, this losing battle that the forests were, were going to burn sooner or later and things were getting worse year after year. And so there's been this just fascinating evolution where uh, these deep green environmentalists and, you know, gray haired hippies are saying, gosh, we need some form of sustainable timber production. Uh, there's some, t it's, you know, it's going to be ugly. A, a, a tree stump is not as beautiful as a, as a full grown sugar pine. Um, but it makes sense to, we, we want that wood and we want to keep our forests healthy. Um, and so there's, there's some, uh, I think, I think there's a, a spectrum, you know, the, the sort of more romantic, uh, environmentalists will say like, yes, we need, we need more fire. 
um, but let's not actually touch it. And God forbid we introduce commerce into it and, and you know, maybe sell some of this or, or use it for our own gain. Um, and the, on the more pr pragmatic end, you have people like me who are saying, look, let's, let's, let's do the best we can. And it's, it's awfully hypocritical to be saying, don't touch the, the trees in my backyard uh, for timber when you're also buying wood for your houses and for your toilet paper and, and what have you. Right. Wow, that was a really great overview. Thank you for that. Um, it's really interesting how many unintended consequences come from even the good things, right? Right. <laughs> That's great. Always. Yeah. So where is that at right now? Like, is that, um, I would imagine, let me preface it with this, by right now that COVID and the fact that there is giant fires burning, probably a lot of this is more contentious or paused at the same time uh, than it probably was not given big fires to, to fight and the fact that there's a pandemic going on. But kind of, is the, is the thoughts evolving more into action? Have you seen that in the past few years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, in, in terms of, in terms of culling the forest, changing the way forests are managed. Yeah, culling the yeah. forest or, or I'm going to like start with culling the forest because I mean, trees obviously have a big part of this. Um, so like the San Juan National Forest in Colorado um, I spent some time there and I was really shocked at some of the valleys that they're there or that the full, you know, the full valley is filled with dead trees. Like, um, and that is from beetles that are native, but because of the drought, they are having, you know, the, the forest is thinning itself out because it's getting less and less water. And then yeah. that makes it more susceptible to the native beetles. The native beetles can keep, just keep jumping. And, and it's this exact same scenario, but we're talking about here. Um, so in both kind of, they're just ahead of us from a little, you know, they're, uh, the farther south you go, you start to see climate change. This is the wave that's coming north. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, the kind of as the the heat is pushing everything further and further up, right? Um, the other thing, too, is that they actually do have a logging industry in the San Juan, but the big problem is that they're not having enough people buy it at, from the market, actually. So it's not it's not sustaining itself um, as, as well as it probably could be if it was shifted a little bit. But um, so both kind of, you know, uh, where are you kind of seeing the ideas shift turn into action in both the logging end of it, um, particularly, and then also kind mm -hmm. of the idea of um, being a more active participant in the nature and kind of helping it along to thrive. Yeah. Well, it's certainly the, the, the battle days of the timber wars it really seems like that's over. It really seems like, um, you know, there's, there's a few polarized people at the fringes. Um, but these days there's a lot of people who are on the same page. Um, and so you have quite a bit of agreement about the need to reintroduce fire into these, I mean, that point, I think no one, there's, there's really no disagreement. Everybody really agrees that we need more fire on the landscape. That's, that's really, um, I would think for most people hearing that, that's pretty surprising given kind of. Yeah. I think that, um, and I think that part of what's happened is that, you know, you have these, 
these rural issues about land management that are hard for people. It's very easy to be romantic about the land when you live far away from it, right? Um, but when the smoke is in your city for weeks on end every year, you start to become very pragmatic very quickly. And you start to say, okay, what can, what can we actually do? Right. Right. <laughs> um, and so, so the idea that like, we're going to burn the forest sounds horrible from a, from a romantic perspective, but people can really figure it out quickly when they're, they're motivated by their self-interest and they're like, is, is, is California going to be this smoky hellscape two or three weeks out of every year for the next century? Or, you know, what are we talking right. about here? And when, when, so it's, it's not that hard to, to grok this idea that you could have prescribed burns through, um, the winter and spring and space out this smoke. And there'd be, you know, because it's such a lower temperature, there'd be a lot less smoke. People really get that. Um, and, and I think people also get the idea that there's, there's places where the forest is so dense that it makes sense to do some thinning, um, or to come in with, uh, these masticating machines that, uh, can cut up the smaller trees and, uh, and manzanita. Um, and so, so we really are seeing progress. There's places where I, I was just on the phone with, um, a representative from the California Department of Natural Resources trying to hear what what California was doing. Um, and they are they just made a deal with the Forest Service to they say treat, you know, which means prescribed burns, logging, mastication, uh, thinning. They're going to treat a million acres a year in conjunction with the Forest Service. And to give you a sense, you know, California has about 33 million acres of forest. And there's some 15 that they've identified as really needing treatment. So that's, it's like close to cities. You can actually get to it. It's, it's, uh, hasn't been burned in a long time. And, um, so if you treat a million acres a year, you, that, that takes that footprint down in, in 15 years, 15 years is about the time that, that it needs to grow back. So you'd have to keep, you'd never be able to stop, right? Right, continue um, again, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but that's that's kind of the, the level that would work. And then you'd have these deeper in the wilderness things that, that just out of control wildfires would manage, basically. Um, and um, so that's, that's happening. That's, that is an agreement that was made. And then you see these projects, like there's this little town of Colfax that's, that's near Nevada city where I grew up. Um, and this, this representative from California department of natural resources was describing this project there because I was, I was describing like, have, have, have these fights over whether we can manage the forest actually really ended or is this just happy talk? And so she told me about this project where they, they wanted to build this fire break around Colfax, keep fire from sweeping into town. And, um, Governor Gavin Newsom suspended the Environmental Quality Act in order to just be able to do it quickly without review. And normally this is just like catnip for environmentalists. You know, you'd, you'd have people sue this and, right. and stop it. Um, 
but it was it was a project that was done with these environmental nonprofits on board who are working hand in hand with the state and you know they things have just gotten so so crazy bad that everybody kind of agrees that this is a problem and so um you had i think it was the native plant society um working with the state and you know they came in and they cut out a bunch of um manzanita and overgrown um, blackberries and the native plant society did a lot of advising on what could go back and you know a year after they said we should do this um you had this area that was filling up with wildflowers and and uh butterflies were flitting from stem to stem and uh it was this beautiful area and it was this natural uh, fire break as well so so these things it's it's actually happening the other thing that gives me some hope is um just on the very sort of commercial side is uh i wrote a story about how environmentalists in nevada city have come around to supporting um a biomass plant in town, which is like, you know, just anathema. The Sierra Club is calls biomass worse than coal because, you know, it's you're you're basically burning trees to create energy, and trees don't have the same energy density as coal, so you you need to burn more to get the same amount and it creates pollution. Right. It's different particulates too, right? Isn't that part of it? Uh, yeah, you get different particulates. Um, the, the particulates from coal are pretty nasty as well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, but with the not as much with the environmentalists right? that was what I was more getting at. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah, exactly. Um, what the environmentalists in town had had gotten at was that you know this these forests were going to burn one way or another. You know that they were they were either going to cut this underbrush down and put it into burn piles or you know a giant fire was going to come through and make way worse smoke pollution or they could burn it very efficiently in a, a gas retort burner um, and have much less pollution and by the way generate some electricity that could displace fossil fuels um, and so so this is sort of mind-blowing that you have these super green saying like let's build an industry to to burn trees and create you know an entire network of chainsaws and and uh, trucks to feed it and all this stuff um and so yeah the the fact that people have come around to that uh that kind of pragmatism really gives me hope i don't know if that'll actually get built uh it's not on pause so much because of covid but more because of the electrical company's bankruptcy uh, and all the complications with that. Well, hopefully they wouldn't be running this anyways. Um, but, uh, you know, that's really interesting. Well, they're, they're key to, um, to because it's a monopoly, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, they, they, they sort of, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a sort of stupidly complicated bureaucratic system where the, you know, it only works financially if it's subsidized and it's subsidized through forcing PG&E to pay far above market rates for this. So you could do it much more simply. You could just say like, this is a smart thing to do to keep our forests healthy and to create some clean power and let's subsidize it directly. But instead they, you know, they twist the utilities arm to take that hit instead. Of course. Uh, 
But, I mean, all of those things kind of packaged up together builds a lot of faith in the future for myself. And kind of the, the thought that it kind of sparks is uh, the action that happens when you're kind of waiting on the barbarians versus when the barbarians are at your gates, right? right. And kind of a lot of what we've had before and maybe perhaps even, I'll even extend it this far, maybe some of the idealism on both sides of, come on, this isn't a problem to like uh right. the best the best thing we could do is nothing as far as like let's hands off this area you know and yep. and now kind of both of those are forced to really kind of say like there's something coming to get us and we need to figure this out now yeah 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 i think that's absolutely right that's great it's a good metaphor um yeah Cotes, there's a great great book waiting on the barbarians uh oh. yeah it's it's great it's a great it's a great no- novel it's very short and also like his writing is stu- stupendous like the opening scene of it is is fantastic. Um, I've never read him. I, I've seen his books around, but I've, that's that's a good uh, reminder. I should, should pick that up. It's the only one of his that I've I've read, and it's based off a poem. And I read the poem after I read the book, and I'm glad I did it in that order. And because mm. I kind of suspected how it w- the book was going to end, but uh, it's still how it came about surprised me, and I think it's in a great example of how civilizations how how peak civilizations fall it's it's really it's it's an interesting case study um cool but that sounds awesome yeah, i really enjoy it. i think about that book a lot um but anything else i i know i want to be conscious of your time thank you so much for, i appreciate yeah, that. for taking your time and uh talking with me i i wanted to, to mostly talk about that the logging and, and things we were riffing on before so i appreciate that uh is there anything else that while i still had you um, no, I think, I, I feel like we've hit the, the important, I feel like we pretty much have solved all of the problems of humanity. So yeah, it only took us uh, less than 60 if, minutes. <laughs> if everybody would just listen to this podcast, uh, we'd be set we could just relax. There we go. We'll be set. 